0: Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be
1: almost a false read like a Band-Aid you
0: put on your arm.
1: Touchdown, Alabama wins! Jack Nicholas wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship at the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters.
0: This is the Victory Over Injury podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan.
2: Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, Passionate fan or occasional observer, we hope to bring it into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. If you're a fan of sports, this podcast and college football in particular, it won't take you long to place the voice of today's guest. The majority of his career has been with ESPN, and his iconic words are synonymous with Saturdays in the fall. A winner of the Allen Berg Memorial Journalism Scholarship, an honoree at the Dick Vitale Gala, a longtime host of the multiple Emmy-winning College Game Day, and a more recent staple on Saturday Night Football. Today's guest is one of the most experienced commentators in the game. Having broadcast for over 30 years, the experience spanning the biggest college football games and stages, over 50 Grand Slam professional tennis finals, the FIFA World Cup, Breeders' Cup, X Games, and more, his ability to dissect, analyze, and process athletic events is exquisite and allows for insightful, pressing, and real conversation. His ability to relate to fans and athletes is effortless because he is both. And today we gain some insight into his own struggles with injury, surgery, and rehabilitation. It is my pleasure today to welcome an expert of the airwaves, a commensurate commentator, and one of the most iconic voices in college football, ladies and gentlemen. With great pleasure and honor, Chris Fowler. Chris, thank you so much for being here.
1: Wow! Thank you for that's a tremendous introduction. I, I, that's exquisite. I appreciate that very much. I'm I'm honored to join your roster of guests. I'll talk about whatever you want. As you know, your topic, your expertise is an area of passion for me as well. On the other side of things, as a patient, we can get to as much of that as you want, but uh, pleased to be with you.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to it. And, and you know, to start off, I think that what's very interesting is that our introduction to our actual podcast, The Audio, someone mentioned, I think, in a prior podcast that you were on that that Alabama-Georgia game was almost like your Michael Jordan game in a way. Can you <laughs> give us a little insight to that? Because not everyone, I think, knows that background for you, how you were feeling that day.
1: As a huge Michael Jordan fan, I wouldn't call myself the Michael Jordan at that moment, but yeah, the parallel is, and maybe the only parallel was it was a championship event and I felt terrible. I had the flu and I don't really get sick in that way very often, but Atlanta was freezing all week. I just came down with the flu the morning of the game, chills, awful. And, and as the game wore on, it was pretty obvious to me that I had a fever. I was kind of in and out with my focus, which is not what you want at a championship game. You need the fastball to be there. But at the end of it, of course, it goes overtime. We go overtime, right? You got to be super sharp at the end. And, and any play can end the season at that moment. And two is passed, which no doubt is what you're talking about your highlight reel to Devontae Smith, ended the season. And then you get to punctuate that moment. And then at that point, you forget you're sick. But as soon as the game ended, you have all these post-game responsibilities. And I remember walking out of the booth and trying to get down to the set where Scott Van Pelt was waiting to talk to Kirk and myself and feeling 107 years old. You know, the full – people know, I think, from from having whatever kind of flu they've had in the past, what that feels like. You just go into total body shutdown, aches, chills. I couldn't even celebrate the end of the season at our raps party. And it takes oh, something to keep me away from a raps party at the yeah. end of the college football season. But yeah, I was just happy to get through it. The weird thing is, I, as I think about that, um, people can relate, I'm sure, is that there's patches of that game that I don't have clear memory of. And that's really unusual. Really? I mean, you yeah. are focused, locked in, you call a game. Um, it's like some golfers remember every single thing about every single shot. That's kind of the way a championship game feels because of the height and concentration you have. But that, that game, there's whole parts of it where I'm like a little fuzzy, you know?
2: Yeah. What, that ending call, Alabama wins, and the phrase, the Crimson Tide will not be denied, is that something you had pre-prepared, or is that something that came to you, even in that sort of scenario where you were feeling totally under the weather?
1: Well, Alabama wins is not a great—that doesn't take much to figure that out. Hopefully, in an overtime game, you have the presence of mind to recognize that that ended it, that it, yeah. it's not like a regular touchdown, that play ends it. And I think what was, what was interesting about that— that moment was as as any Alabama fan listening to this knows, it followed a horrendous play by Tua. He took a sixteen yard loss on a sack on first down in overtime, Cardinals sent. I've talked to Nick Saban about that a lot since then. He wanted a strangle to strangle Tua. He thought he just lost the game. Yeah. You can't take that sack, right? So we're still analyzing that. We're still in the replays. We come back out. It's second and 26. And you don't really have the time to properly frame the next play because you're so busy reacting to that incredible first down play. So as I recall, by the time Herbshire was done talking and the replays were done, we, were, we had snapped the ball. We were already into the play. So what comes to mind is Bailoa trying to make up for it. That's what I said as he launched the ball, you barely have time to recognize that you got four receivers running downfield. you got at that point a freshman who had not done that much in his career, I mean, Devontae had played like half the games in the season. Now he's the one catching this pass. They're picking on the same Georgia corner pretty much throughout. So that mismatch, we didn't have a chance to really process. So I'm not – it's not ideal. You're sort of just reacting. You sort of feel like you're a half step behind because of what happened the previous play. So caught, touchdown, Alabama wins. That's bare bones. And then you sort of pull back for a second and let it play out because – this season is over and the, the the moment is just incredible. I mean, yeah. anybody will remember that even if you're not an Alabama fan or a Georgia fan, you remember watching that game. And uh, when you have a play like that, that's like a grand slam winning a game seven of the world series. Right. So that the crimson tie will not be denied. No, I didn't, if you know, you can't plan these lines. You really can't. I mean, I was actually a lot more proud of the, the, the description of Georgia's touchdown to get to that game in overtime against Oklahoma. when, Sonia Michelle ran the ball in the end zone. I said, Sonia Michelle sends the dogs home to the national championship game." And Georgia fans just kind of love that idea of sending the dogs home. The other one, like I said, I was just so hilarious. You're, you're happy that something comes out of your mouth that makes yeah. sense at the moment, but because um, you know you know that you're going to get very few chances in a career to call a moment like that. Yeah. Even if I do this a lot more, it's it's not going to pop up like that very often. Look what we had. You know, this past season, Bama fans will take it. There was no stress. Yeah. There was no Ajana. They just rolled over Ohio State. That's become, unfortunately, a little bit more typical than that incredible moment walk off touchdown.
2: Yeah. No, I would agree. And I actually didn't watch the commentary because I was actually at the game. I was on the field with Dr. Kane as part of the medical staff. And from our perspective, after Tua took the sack, the whole sideline was just totally deflated, and like you said, after you talked to Coach Saban, he wanted to strangle him. The whole sideline was pretty much like we're done, you know. Especially after changing quarterbacks at halftime, yeah. and then before you could even finish that sort of processing of, oh my gosh, the season's over. The next thing you look up and Devontae's in the end zone, and people go nuts and almost didn't know what to do. It was it was a fantastic series of events.
1: That what a great perspective is. to have, man! That's an unforgettable experience, yeah. and I'm sure you, because now it gets dissected and played out. But you, you, what you're pointing out is how fast it all happened. Yeah, I mean, you you go from oh my god, we just lost, to we won the championship, and yeah. and and I don't know that we'll get something quite like that again. I'm not counting on it. I'm yeah. hopeful, but that might stand alone when I eventually hang this up and look back at that moment. That might stand alone, and the shame of it is like. <laughs> I couldn't enjoy it because i felt so bad that's so awful yeah you know
2: <laughs> well aside from feeling bad i would agree that's probably one of a, a highlight of, of a career let alone just being a fan Seeing that if we rewind from your standpoint you from illinois originally bounced around a little bit lived some of your early life in uh, colorado my home state which you and i got to talk about a little bit earlier the funny yeah. thing about it is is your high school in colorado springs was the same place that my mom and all of her five siblings went. So I'm sure there was a little bit of crossover, which was funny when you told me that you went to Palmer High School.
1: Palmer Terrors, man. That is yeah. the original high school in Colorado Springs, right downtown. And uh, the list of alums is pretty interesting from that school. Lance Armstrong happens to be a friend of mine. Now he was at the Colorado Springs Olympic Training Center. So that's why he was at Palmer briefly, but he did yeah. go there. I think he might have graduated from there because it so happened that he was that age.
2: I didn't realize that. Elvira,
1: yeah. mistress of the dark also an alum of wow. Palmer High School. So we got some history there, and I'm just proud to be a small part of it.
2: That's amazing. From there, ended up going to see you. What was it about your youth growing up that really led you to going into broadcasting or journalism or media at a, at a young age? Because that's what it looks like. Even from college, you kind of almost knew what you wanted to do.
1: Yeah, I'm living the dream, to be honest with you, my, Ever since I'm 10 years old, I wanted to do this. And my grandmother was the reason. My parents were not sports fans. They didn't watch a lot of sports, except maybe for the Olympics. But my grandmother was a fanatic. And in Illinois at that time, um, we would get dropped off at their house on some summer days. My folks are working or maybe on the weekends, and and she would have only certain listeners are gonna understand what this is, but a baseball scorebook. And she would sit there in the backyard with a transistor radio and a folding chair and score Cubs games in this scorebook. And she was a fanatic Cubs fans. We're talking about late 60s, early 70s now. So that was my introduction to sports. And we would watch NFL games there on Sunday. And and her passion for the Cubs is what got me into listening to games. And then as I did that, I thought, what could be a better job than describing the excitement from Wrigley Field to fans like me who are just as excited to hear it? And and Chicago Blackhawks, hockey games on the radio, or the other thing that, that kind of lit the, the flame in me. And so I just, I wanted to do this forever, and I have my grandmother, thank. and as I got to high school and college, did everything I could to prepare myself, to round out the skill set, to make connections, to get reps, and that's what my college experience was. I mean, C was a very social campus, it's always in the top five party schools, not for me. I was in Denver working at a newspaper doing prep sports on a lot of Fridays and Saturday nights. I was doing stats on Saturday for the worst football team in the world at that time. CU's football team was (laughs) dismal, And, you know, no no friends, no girlfriend, nobody ever understood why I was spending so much time on things like that instead of having fun in college. When I speak to students, I do say that you only have one college experience and maybe enjoy it a little bit more than I did because uh, I was grinding all the time. Now it worked out. I did make the contacts. I did come away with, Uh, a good resume tape after my years in Colorado that got me right on the air in Denver and got me in the door while I was a student as a sports producer in a top 20 market at a really good station learning from really good sportscasters. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I knew what I was doing. I was giving up some social, giving up some fun, but improving. And that allowed me to have sort of an accelerated process where a year out of school, ESPN called me to go do a show uh, on high school sports, which they were launching, launching called uh, Scholastic Sports America. So I w- that would never have happened if I hadn't had an on-air tape at a big station like Denver. And that never would have happened if I hadn't spent a lot of time in Boulder putting a camera against – I have a blank white wall behind me. This reminds me of my college uh, apartment. I used to set up a camera, hook it up to the TV, frame it up, and then just do kind of a mock sports cast and lay highlights yes. over top of it. But it wasn't a real – Live sportscast at all, but just from from doing that and having enough experience in campus TV and radio, I had a tape that apparently someone over there thought was good enough to hire me as like the cub reporter, and that sort of allowed me. It's you take these steps, and then all of a sudden, that leads to something where you're you can take kind of a quantum leap forward, and I, I was able to do that. And I, I will say this though. Um, and I say this to all young people, doesn't matter what they want to do. It doesn't even have to do with, with a job choice, you know, being able to listen to your inner voice and trust your gut and make the right choice. If you're lucky enough to have options is so much of the battle in this business and everything else. Cause I took a couple of really unconventional choices to get where I got ESPN was not a place that I was advised to work because it was out it was seven years old. Remember this is not the worldwide leader in anything. Yeah, it was still very stuff, early. So. Yeah, exactly. It was established for sports fans but it wasn't guaranteed that this was gonna become something huge and that was gonna be the right move to make. So I was sort of advised to forget that, go to local stations, read some scores, work your way up the ladder, that's the way it's done. And fortunately, I had a different vision and I didn't listen to that advice and went to ESPN. And then while I was at ESPN also was offered some things they thought were no brainers as far as promotion to change lanes and go back to LA and be a bureau guy and let's go cover the Dodgers and go cover the Lakers. And, you know, it didn't feel right to me at the time. And so I said, no, shockingly to them, I'll stay here in Bristol. I'll do this high school sports show another year. It doesn't feel right to me. And a month later they called and said, how would you like to do college football sidelines and report on this, this pregame show that nobody watches called game day. Yes. Immediately the light bulb moment. Yeah. And so my point in, in that long-winded story is that yes, it's lucky, yes, you prepare yourself, but then there's still those moments. I'm sure you've had them. People have had success can always point back to the time when they maybe took a path that didn't seem like the obvious one. It wasn't about the money. It sure as hell wasn't about fame for me, that none of that stuff ever factored in. It was about what seems fulfilling, fun, challenging. And it's supposed to be a fun job, right? You don't get into this to, yeah. to not have fun. Yeah. So I made choices based on what would seem most enjoyable, which people it just it boggles the mind, including kids who want to do this now, but are so programmed to think about money and fame and get your brand out there. And I, I can tell you that the hardest way to arrive at that is to focus on it early, right?
2: Yeah, I think there's you know, there's a lot to to that story, and that I kind of want to pull on a few of those things. One, as a college kid going in, you were very forward thinking in this idea of hey, the social aspect can wait because I have a, a goal that I'm searching for, that I have, I have this very well-defined understanding of how I want to be in this realm. Were you always like that, or did that develop as a college student when you finally realized exactly what you wanted to do?
1: Yeah, I, I guess it did. I, I was not always the most studious. I was a decent student. I was expected to get good grades. My parents both had... Uh, you know, master's degrees, they well educated. My dad was a college professor, my mom was a professor. I was expected to succeed in school. Didn't matter what the obstacles were or the excuses were. We I had plenty I could have made. But no, when I got to college, I mean I definitely I skipped a lot of classes. I, I don't make it seem like I was an A student. I got good enough grades, but I actually viewed it almost this is this is sacrilege to some of the professors. I, I viewed it almost as a trade school because I needed to acquire the skills. But it was not going to be as much about academic learning. I mean, I certainly went to those classes and I I, I took a well-rounded curriculum. But for me, it was about, again, as I said, getting the skills and making contacts. And I, I don't know if it was forward thinking, but it made sense to me at the time. And it's like it's worked out pretty well.
2: Yeah. I would think so too. Your first experience at ESPN was, as you mentioned, the Scholastic Sports America. One of the interesting things I saw in reading about you with this is you were a part of the first US crew to go over to the Soviet youth schools. And that oh. was still very early on. Things were still kind of evolving. What was that experience like for you to go over there as a young professional from the sports standpoint? And what was your experience like from a cultural standpoint over there?
1: I felt like I was walking through a spy novel I really, when I was in Moscow, because this was at the beginning of sort of last nose. Gorbachev was in power. They're opening up to the West, but they had not allowed an American TV crew to visit their youth sports schools where they were training future Olympians. We were very excited to do that. It was intriguing. We were supervised by the KGB throughout, watched, as you might expect at that point. Our every move was monitored. And, but I just, that just added to the intrigue, man. I would, you know, we'd go to Gorky Park. I'm thinking about all the Tom Clancy, Jean Le Carre novels I've read. I mean, we were, we're watching changing of the guard at Kremlin's tomb from in Red Square. I, you, you could get out of the hotel. If you knew what you were doing at two o'clock in the morning and they would change the guard every hour. And you'd hear the boots on the cobblestones on this on empty Red Square. And I just get chills thinking about it. We drank a lot of vodka. <laughs> um, we, we met some people. We, we had a good time and we came away with some really good TV. And that's one of those experiences that, you know, had I taken a more conventional path, never would have had, never would have had anything like that. We ended up going to Germany, driving around Bavaria, going to Finland. We, we had a few other experiences internationally with that show. And 10 years later, went back to Moscow, a very different landscape. Now it's westernized, kind of the early wild, wild west, and did a 10-year-later kind of similar sports story. Mm-hmm. But having had that experience in 86, which is just what you think of, man. Uh, they wanted your jeans. They wanted your trading pins. They wanted just Western things. Wow. And it was it was a, a great experience. It, one of the things that really helped spark a passion or continue a passion for me, international travel and covering sports events overseas and in far-flung places is really what I love to do. It's what I've loved about being involved in tennis, but that trip was, uh, was tremendous. Yeah. Thanks for asking about that. I don't think about that very often. I looked like a complete child in the photos when I pulled those up. <laughs> yeah,
2: but you did, but, but it, you looks like you were so excited to be there. And I can't, like it I said, was. I can't even imagine that experience. You mentioned that that obviously prompted this interest in international travel, which then got you into, and we'll come back to, I really want to talk about game day too, but that got you into covering tennis, which when I look at it, you cover all the majors in the tennis world, which is very fascinating, or at least you've had experience doing that. How did you make your way into the tennis world? And what is different about that compared to college football that you've noticed that you have to change how you approach things or how you analyze things? Or what's different about that experience too?
1: Well, the experience is very different. The way you call the matches versus the games are very different. I I can get as granular as you want with that. But I got into tennis not because it made sense. Again, it's one of those choices you make, not because someone would advise you that this is smart for your brand, or this is going to be a great career move. I just love the sport. Played it since I was a kid, had decent talent, never a really good competitive player, but I loved watching tennis from a really young age. And so as we began to acquire more tennis, I just lobbied harder and harder to do it. They were resistant a little bit because they wanted to keep me on college basketball and covering the NCAA tournament, in the Final Four. That collided with a lot of things in the tennis calendar. I had to get off of some things that they wanted me to do to go call tennis matches. I finally wore them down, and we got to do Australia in the middle of the Aussie summer, right after football season, which I did for 17 years. This year, we couldn't make it down there because of COVID. And then we had the French Open for 15 years. Paris is the city where my wife and I got engaged, but I love Paris. Are you kidding yeah. me? Two weeks in Paris in the spring. And the schedule was pretty cushy. We had a lot of nights off to go have nice meals. I and mean, that was just a great, we didn't, we didn't yeah. even work weekends. <laughs> NBC had matches on the weekend, So we're, we're just running around Paris, having a great time. Wimbledon is, along with the Rose Bowl, kind of a co-favorite event, period. And then we got the U.S. Open, we're, you know, living in New York. And, and you know, being a fan of the Open, going many nights as a fan, getting to call, that was a thrill. And Yeah, I mean, it it was a time we had all four majors and a bunch of master's events. And that's since changed a little bit. The landscape has changed for us. We we sadly lost the French and lost a few other tournaments. But uh, we hold on to the three majors for now. And tennis on TV is tough to capture. We have a hard time bringing it through the screen and making people understand the athleticism of the players, the speed with which they move, change direction, the explosive movements, and the, the speed and spin of the ball. We try our best. But camera angles are, are difficult. And you see that, that high angle behind the baseline. If you watch tennis, you see it hour after hour. It doesn't do the experience justice. So I encourage anybody that has any interest in the sport, if they can, to get as close as you possibly can to the court to watch a big match and watch big players play because the experience is different in person. We try our best. So I try to relate as they call a match, but I don't think the camera can pick up. And very often that's the look in the eye of a player. It's just that palpable sense of through body language, through their ability to tap into the crowd energy when a match is about to shift and when a match is at a a tipping point because once somebody's energies come down or mentally they're pouring a lot into this moment, and if they don't succeed in this moment, the fuel tank just got emptier because they didn't cash in on that opportunity. And so it's just sort of what goes on between the ears, the mental part. And I leave the stroke analysis and the criticism of tactics a lot to the people who have been in that arena. You know, I'm not going to try to outrank John McEnroe or Patrick McEnroe or Chrissy Everett when it comes to what's going on on the court from the player's perspective, that's their realm. And you can very easily overstep if you're a play by play and haven't been there at a high level. So I try to just bring the, the natural enthusiasm that I have as a tennis fan in there and try to make that contagious do my homework know everything i possibly can about it and then trust your instinct um that that just comes over time though i I cringe but what i hear the early tennis broadcasts i did because i just didn't have the seasoning to understand fully what i was watching and properly gauge my excitement and the delivery you know tennis is one of those things where i'll I'll give you one little piece of granular announcery stuff which is when a football play ends you speak but you also speak during the play, right? So you're sort of narrating what's going on and it's, it's a very much a see it, say it. Tennis is the opposite. You don't speak in the point. So you're taking in everything that's happening. Then you have to have the right instinct to punctuate the point when it's over. The thing that's challenging is that right thing might change four times. Let's say it's a long rally, And something happened in the third shot that could be crucial. But a few shots later, that doesn't matter because the point continues. And so all the things, as you watch the point and you focus as intently as you can, uh, I'm proud to say that with contact lenses, I have 20, 12 vision. So very good vision helps. I can see the spin of the ball. I, I can focus in totally on what's going on. And when the point ends, hopefully the right thing pops into your head and you're able to punctuate it, but it's really challenging to do that. And then when a tennis match gets really good, you wanna say nothing. So the silence is really important. We've, we've, gone, we've gone big matches at Wimbledon and finals of the US Open, et cetera, where you know, we'll let, this is exceptional, it's not normal. We'll let five or six points go without saying anything because nothing is needed. It's just the tension is there and it's so real and you don't wanna spoil it because you wanna stay out of the way. I mean, in general, there's more talking now than there used to be. We're not, we're not using the old BBC model of just silence. I mean, you have to say something to engage people. It's expected. It's a different attention span and a different viewer than we had in other decades. But, but still, it's restraint. It's discipline. And it's knowing that you know the minute somebody hits a backhand winner, the first game of the match – you don't come out of your shoes. You don't empty the bucket. You don't say, that's the game plan. That's exactly what you you just have restraint. There's a long way to go. There's a lot that can happen and unfold in this match and, and just let it kind of come to you. So I love the challenge of it. I think it's really underappreciated. It's one of the most challenging things I've done to call a tennis match well. And it, it really is exciting for me when, when someone like yourself asks about tennis or recognizes the work in tennis because... I think that it's something that I'm as, as proud of as anything else. I love the experience of being abroad and covering a big global event with yeah. athletes all over the place. I mean, it's always fascinating me in sports. I've always been a fan of the Olympics and the World Cup and these World Championship type events. And the closest I get to that stuff is, is covering a Grand Slam.
2: That's awesome. That's such a great experience. I I don't catch a lot of them, but when I do, the experience seems to be amazing, especially how different each one of them are too. So that's got to be a great way to profile all the different athletes in different settings, especially when you look at how different athletes perform on different court surfaces and different locations. It's pretty fascinating to watch all that as well. Which also,
1: I got to be honest with you, one of the things that's great about covering tennis in this era is I've gotten to call so many matches involving Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Djokovic, Serena. I mean, this is an unbelievable yeah. era. So you're witnessing history being chased and made almost every tournament when these players are involved. And that's priceless yeah. to see the career arc. That's one thing you don't get in college football. The, the big difference about my two sports is the players come and go so quickly. So you get to see that that fresh blood all the time in the sport, but you don't get to establish the long-term relationships with players, with coaches you do. But it's different. You know, it's hard to be really friendly with a coach from my perspective. I I can't be a friend of Saban or, you know, Dabo or Jimbo. You can't. It's just not appropriate to be a friend of theirs It'll be too friendly. I learned that. I used to hang out with coaches, bring a couple tequila shots, you know, try to be buddies when I was younger. It doesn't make sense to do that. In the long run, it doesn't help you. But tennis... I don't drink shots with Roger, hang out with him in that way either, but you get to see so many matches over time. And it's such a rich experience to to do a hundred Nadal matches and now be calling Rafa in a huge moment for him and feeling like, yeah, I, I know, I know how he's thinking. I know how he's feeling a little bit because I've talked to him about it plenty. And because I've seen up close, the bandage we have in tennis, which is so close to the court a lot of times. And you you sort of, okay, this is a moment. This is what he's thinking. He's going to get a little bit nervous in this game. I can just feel it. This feels like a couple of things I recall in the past. And, you know, the internal dialogue of a tennis player is the most fascinating thing. You can't really see it in football. There's 22 guys out there. You're a long way away. You know, if you're covering the NFL, you kind of know, okay, Here's what Brady might be thinking or Peyton or Breeze or these guys. But in tennis, it's really different. You know, you, there's only two people out there. And what's going on between their ears is the battle. That's it. And and so trying to, to put yourself there and dissect it. It's so different football. The challenges are different. And keeping your mind focused for four and a half hours, if you need to, for a five-set match or longer, I called a five-hour and 57-minute match before.
2: It's it's an endurance Uh, sport right there. By
1: the way, the last five minutes of it, you better be sharp. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter what you spent in the first five it's the last few minutes of it that you have to be able to punctuate and be sharp. And I think, too, when you do different sports, you work with different analysts. And that's a huge joy for me. I mean, with Kirk, it's been 25 years together on game day and on Saturday night, and Lee Corso and Desmond Howard and the different guys on game day and different football analysts I've worked with. But in tennis, it's, it's quite a different experience. I mean, we go to a tournament, and there might be a cast of eight or nine analysts that are orbiting around, and you might call a match with Chrissy Everett in the afternoon and John McEnroe at night or Brad Gilbert or Darren Cahill, and they're all very different. So the job that I do is different depending on their style, and that, that's endlessly challenging. So, um, yeah, you can, I think you can tell that it baffles football people why I can love tennis as much and why Wimbledon center court means just as much to me as the Rose Bowl or the championship game, but it does.
2: Yeah. That provides a lot of insight, too, to really make us understand, you know, why that's so important and different. That was great insight. Going back to what a lot of people, I think, know you for. I went to Notre Dame and I remember, you know, waking up on Saturday mornings and you were there. And that was kind of, all right, let's start our day off before we get out and go. T- did you go to a game day when you were a student that we were there? I did, yeah. So I was there for the Notre Dame-USC game, the Bush-Push game.
1: The Bush Push game? Oh my God. Yeah. What a moment. Oh man. What a heartbreak for you.
2: It was not unlike the Alabama Georgia experience, but the opposite because we were so happy that I was actually on the 30 yard line where our student section seats were on the sixth row up. So by that time we had scored, I was on the field on the 30 yard line. And if you remember (laughs) the overhead speaker came up and said, get off the field. So we started walking our way back and the next thing we know the Bush Push happened, they scored and we were standing there and it was the exact same thing. I've never been from a place of so much elation to so much depression in such a quick experience. So I've seen both sides of it very, very uh, funnily enough. Oh man, Notre
1: Dame was the ver- the site of our very first game day roadshow, as I'm sure you know, back, yeah. back in 93 for the one versus two game. Different result for Notre Dame fans that yeah. day, but it-, it finally took a game like that to get game day on the road. And obviously, if you love the sport, you have a special feel for Notre Dame just because of the living history there. And we've had many, many game day moments, even though we really haven't broadcast Notre Dame home games my way to get there, thank God, was it didn't matter who had the game. Game day would go to the biggest game, and so whether it's the Bush Push game, a couple of classic Notre Dame Michigan games, uh, other chances to see them there, Miami, the Miami Notre Dame game, yeah. Catholics versus Convicts, yeah. covering that. I mean, so th- there's so many great moments at Notre Dame, and it was neat. For a while, we didn't go. Now we didn't. We were uninvited to Notre Dame in the Charlie Weiss era. Really, uh, that's not really known now it's known i have yeah. a lot of that but yeah we were not welcome there just some things that were said and the relationship was not very good Interesting. So it wasn't just me i wasn't personally it was espn in yeah. general so for a while then they weren't very good as you know so it wasn't like they were hosting the biggest game of the week very often in those years but then when they came back yeah and um re themselves man it's it's been fun to go back there and have Vince Vaughn be a guest picker and you know, Corso put on the leprechaun suit and dance around. Oh, and, man. I mean, now we're making people mad who aren't Notre Dame fans. But I know,
2: I, <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> well, especially since I'm broadcasting here from Birmingham, Alabama, where <laughs> I came down here. I'm, I'm sitting across uh, from a painting on the wall of the 2012 National Championship of Eddie Lacy running over one of our linebackers. So I when I interviewed here...
1: Very well, too, down in yeah. Miami. hits where I am now. But no, also, it, it, and Alabama fans, we, we had the great pleasure Doing iron ball games right there in Birmingham at Allegiant Field. and I, I saw early SEC championship games, early iron balls in Allegiant in, uh, Field, just all that that entailed the tailgating before the game, the actual game, the danger in the air on the streets outside the stadium after the game. It was all part of the package. Yeah. That, that was early in our, our game day roadshow years, and uh, we will always have a special field for, for Birmingham and also obviously for Tuscaloosa. We've been there, I think, as much as any place.
2: Yeah. When you go back to the college game day as it first started out, did you help develop that process or were you just early on to the scene and then helped it grow from its infancy?
1: It's a gig nobody wanted in 1990 when I took over. I think the show was a, a half hour at that point. It led into games that kicked off at noon Eastern that nobody watched. It was an Ivy League package, or the odd game. So it was not like a, uh, it was a gig everybody was clamoring for. I didn't elbow Chris Berman out of the way to get college game day. I mean, it was sort of this, it was offered to me when the previous host decided he wanted to move on. And, and I was thrilled to do it because I love the sport. And it was certainly a challenge. But Lee Corso was there. Beano Cook, for people who are old enough to remember him, is just a classic figure in the sport, a crusty guy from Pittsburgh who was a great counterpoint to Lee Corso. Then Craig James came in the mix. And they, they really had uh, the kind of chemistry that helped build the show. But no, it it was one of those rare once in a a career opportunities to build something brick by brick from from the ground up. And we're very proud of that. Game day ended up being something that was a real part of the fabric of the culture of college football and made a lot of money for the company and became sort of the the kind of cross cultural experience where people even they weren't even huge fans of the sport, but be aware of game day. And people will come up to me and say, you know, my first experience watching sports with my dad was watching you guys on Saturday morning. It's neat to hear that. Yeah. And then we're very proud of that. The show grew from, from, from 30 to 60 to 90 to two hours. and became this three hour monstrosity and, pretty soon we needed this giant footprint on a campus and it wasn't this quaint little stage plop down there with a rope around it. It was this rock and roll show type setup where, uh, you know, we had net behind us and security and a whole bunch of stuff going on around us. But the essential ingredients were four guys or three guys on a set who felt the same way about the sport as the viewers did. We knew exactly what the show was. The show was a pregame show to get you ready for that Saturday's games. We got into issues, some, uh, as it was appropriate, but really it was about to rev you up for the games you were about to see. And when you have a simple mission like that, that everybody buys into and is enthusiastic about, and you really like the people you work with, and you have a, a, a traveling kind of show where the crowd behind you becomes a character in the show, and they take such pride in showcasing what their campus is about, and coaches would figure out, oh, wow, Let's help this show because this show helps us. And a few coaches early on seized that idea of let's make this an infomercial for our program to the degree that we can, at least with the backdrop. It became fun and and schools began to try to outdo each other. And the thing just grew exponentially from about the. Mid to late 90s
2: on. Yeah. Was there a point in the mid 90s when you realized either you're at a location or you were at a specific time frame or a game that you really realized this had kind of gone from where it was initially, it kind of started to launch kind of into that sort of stratosphere?
1: Yeah, there's a couple moments. And once we got on the road um, pretty regularly, 94, 95, 96, you know, we'd go on the road about half the time. And the presence there, you could just tell, was exciting for the campuses. You know, Nebraska beat the alma mater, Colorado. It was a game in 94, which was a huge showdown game. And um, they ripped the goalpost down inside Memorial Stadium, took one of the uprights outside the stadium. And we look over, it's a post-game show now. We had kind of, we used to bookend the day with these shows after the game. I see this goalpost kind of making its way through the crowd. It's this jagged metal thing. Somebody's gonna get killed if if we're not careful. So we said, all right, clear the way, get this goalpost over to our set. Just to get it out of the crowd, and they laid the goalpost down across the desk. <laughs> like the they had presented to us. And you know, even though I was like not pleased by the result of that game, and deep inside, I recognized, wow, like this is something now. Go into these campuses when Tebow and Leak were sharing the duties at Florida, and Florida won it. What a huge game on, in the route to a championship! And both those quarterbacks came out to the set after the game. And we had this mob scene out there. And then, then the, the momentum would just build. Yeah. And I mentioned the coaches, Frank Beamer at Virginia Tech was a huge friend of the show. And he figured out that one way to make Blacksburg Virginia come alive and make people recognize what a great place it was, but it was not well known. I mean, this is just when Michael Vick was getting there. And they were not a national program yet. They hadn't played for the championship against uh, Florida State in 99 yet. But Frank saw that this was important and this was a building block to his program they, they would just put 10 15,000 people in Lane Stadium to watch the show in a big screen. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, I wouldn't have done that if I was in college. Yeah. Now, if, I'm, if I'm hungover, over it's Saturday morning, I'm not I'm not going to walk out to watch the back of four guys heads in a big screen. Yeah. Like I but but I'm glad they did and then we begin to realize wow, this has just reached another level. For me, it was never about who could have the biggest crowd. That wasn't really um, a selling point of the show for me. I, I just wanted it to be a fun environment and the people who were there able to enjoy the experience. So, you know, and then over the years, we had a few special shows where we were able to capture some poignant moments and it wasn't just about screaming kids behind us, but about being there and capturing what was unique about that spot on that day in history, whether it was the first game of Virginia Tech coming back after they had the shootings the previous spring, which we'll eternally Mm -hmm. be proud of the way we executed that show and captured that moment. We were at the the service Academy after September 11th, and then again at air force during a period of time when Fort hood in Texas had a tragic shooting and some army personnel were killed. And now army was playing air force that day and the air force cadets And the army folks who were there on an exchange program standing next to each other for a flyover. Mm -hmm. I mean, moments like that, just when the show sort of stepped away from just barbecue pregame and and it was able able to sort of be there for a moment. Like I'll always remember those times too.
2: Those are fantastic moments. Of all those moments, you'd mentioned the Rose Bowl. Is that your favorite stadium to be in as far as an on-site location or is there another stadium or area that you prefer? What's your favorite. Well, in
1: terms of the overall venue, yeah, because it's just it's a magic place. And the Rose Bowl elevates things that happen on the field just because it's at the Rose Bowl. I mean, you, you feel the presence of history. There's just amazing energy in it. Maybe you feel like you imagine it, but if 100,000 people imagine it, it's real because they're all having the same experience and you, you go to the Rose Bowl and everybody has the same kind of vibe. There's nowhere else on earth they'd rather be than in that place at that time. And San Gabriel Mountains in the background, beautiful golden light. Here comes sunset in the third quarter, and the mountains are pink. And, and, and you just got the sense that it's it's just a piece of football history when a Rose Bowl game un, unfolds there. There's a lot of magic to be found on campus on a Saturday night. You know whether you're in Notre Dame Stadium or or Baton Rouge or you know the Horseshoe or the, the Swamp. I mean, we've had the the good fortune to be at all the big venues when they're having their biggest game of the season. So it's hard for me, Oregon, Oxen stadium is a very special place to take game day and watch a game because the energy there was a little bit unique, but yeah, it's hard to pick one, one favorite, but in terms of stadiums, you know, there's the Rose bowl and Wimbledon center court. And for me, they have something in common and that's sort of the, my co-favorite venues. Yeah.
2: I can imagine seeing All those different locations on some of their biggest games. I mean, it's hard to choose a favorite. They're all going to be special i like to move on a little bit and kind of get into this idea of injuries. And I think I want to approach it a little bit from two different perspectives. I know that you've had your injuries and I want to talk about those, but as a commentator, when you have a player go down, obviously your need is to have a human response, but also be objective. How do you approach when you see a player go down on the football field? Are you getting information from somewhere or are you guys seeing it real time like we are and just, you know, not guessing, but kind of presuming or how, how do you approach an injury on the field?
1: That's a good question. Number one, as a human being, you hate to see it. I mean, my wife sends me the same message for every game: hope you have a great game and nobody gets hurt. Yeah. That, that's what the wish is. Um, as they get older, I get a little softer in those things, and I understand how precious time is. And you, you're around college players for decades; you understand that the careers are short and they fly by, and it's fleeting. And when you see a guy go down and get hurt, and you know the injury is going to cost him time, and that maybe it's career-ending, maybe it's season-ending. It's certainly going to knock him out of this moment. I mean, I feel for him a lot, but you can't let that obviously get in the way of documenting it professionally. So we obviously try to avoid speculation. Nobody wants to be wrong and speculate about stuff like that. And, and so we rely on as much information as we can get officially, which is very little these days. Yeah. And I have people be interested in this. I have people that I really trust who are in the physical therapy and athletic training field. I know plenty of great surgeons, too. They don't usually text me in the middle of the game, but there are people sort of, they, I, listen, I, they don't expect me to read the text on the air, but this is what this is. But they you say, hey, from the way they're examining that, I think it could be this. And so it's sort of like, okay, uh, their opinion, don't, don't jump to conclusions. It may not be an ACL. It could be anything, but it's a tough part of the job. And yes, if you see someone on the field for an extended period of time. And here comes the flatboard. and they're keeping him immobilized. Now here comes the cart. We've all had to call games like that. It's heartbreaking because as violent a game as football is, as inevitable as those kind of injuries are, it's still, it's very, very tough to watch that. Yeah. And, you know, we just got done with the championship game. And it, the, the, Trey Sermon, to Ohio State running, his injury wasn't like that, but it's the second play of the game, he gets knocked out. And he's the guy, he's the hot hand. And so you, you feel for him. You, you prepare so hard and you you wait for those moments. You, you dream as a kid of being in a championship game and his end that a few, few plays in. Batman has a habit of knocking out stars on the other team, but that's all another story. Cleanly, but they do it. They hit real hard. And they tend to not go. Get... <laughs> yeah,
2: they absolutely so I, hit hard. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I just think that my reaction to it is that how we handle it, is is tricky because you just don't want to be wrong about that kind of thing so you sort of document what you see no. and, and you limit it to that is an obvious pain he's grimacing here is what the trainers are doing it, it helps if you have the background this player has had this is the same need last year or it was the other side that cost him the season a year ago now it's the right side you know the more you can sort of do your homework and be up to speed on that, which again, isn't easy because no one wants to really give out this information, but it helps. It helps just give some context without hopefully overstepping and being just dead wrong about it.
2: Do you feel like having injuries yourself and having come through that has helped you identify a little bit with those athletes have gone down, or if you do a piece or talk to an athlete beforehand, or even post-game who's gone through that, do you think that's helped you?
1: In the moment, possibly, it's helped me be more empathetic Because although I have nothing in common with an elite athlete, I know what it's like to be hurt. I know what it's like to be on the sidelines and not be able to do things you want to do. So that might help in in, in some respect. I have had conversations with players offline because of what I've gone through, because of the belief that I have in great sports medicine. And great physical therapy. And I have a perspective that they don't have at that moment because a lot of those guys have not really suffered a serious injury before. And as you know from your, your practice, and they go through that for the first time, they're shocked and they don't know how to react and it can be really deflating. So I, I don't overstep, but I try to be encouraging in that situation because I think for them, someone who's older and less athletic, but has still come back stronger from surgeries and serious injuries, lets them know they can certainly do that. And I don't have a vested interest. I'm not on their staff. I'm not a teammate. I'm not a coach. I'm just an outsider that's been through stuff. And I think I've seen in their eyes a recognition that maybe what I'm saying has some value and they appreciate it. And I've had people say after the fact, hey, that really helped. So again, I'm not out here you know, trying to be a, an angel to everybody that's gotten hurt. But when I feel it's appropriate, I, I will share those experiences because I think sometimes... These young players that, that that are hurt for the first time, the, the the uncertainty is the worst part, right? They just don't know what to expect, don't yeah. know what how they're going to react, and they don't know how how tough the road back is. So, yeah. I also know, I'll say this one thing because I've suffered multiple injuries to the same thing. I'm very able to spot in a game the reaction of a player who knows what happened to him and knows how tough the road back is. I can see it in their face yeah. because, you know, they've, they've been through it before and yes, you know, you can come back, but you also know how much pain and how much patience you have to have and how tough that can be and what it's going to cost them. And so I'm able to pick up on that a lot. Cause I, I've had the exact same feeling that I've had the same injury for a second time. And you think, Oh shit. Like I can do this, but I know exactly how that it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've never personally experienced that, but I look on athlete's face um, and I have a couple I'm of sure seen that look. Yeah. And it's as a provider, there's nothing you can say at the time other than, Hey, listen, we're going to get you taken care of, but you're right. I mean, all those things going through someone's head is exactly, you described it perfectly of this. Oh man. I, yeah, I can do it, but I already know where I'm at. I'm, I'm at square one right now
1: and it's going to be a long road. Yeah. Thankfully I, I don't make my living or my scholarship with athletic ability. So that's the part that's not the same. I, I can still sure. do my job less than hundred percent physically very easily, yeah. but I, I don't want to put myself in that position. I was like, I'm not a, if, I, if you're a pro athlete, that is your career flashes in front of your mind. When that happens yeah. For me, it's, it's a relative inconvenience, yeah. you know? Yeah.
2: Well, kind of shifting into that, you have a history with injury as well. And I, I don't necessarily want to start with a 2013 sort of chicken sandwich thing where Jesse Palmer saved you, but <laughs> we could probably lead into that and then go down the injuries that actually required a little bit more oh rehab. My God. What happened with that one?
1: That, that was a, that's a funny story. I mean, I, I was calling the pinstripe bowl, a bowl game at Yankee stadium. So the rare football game is there and the press box is down the first base line. So at halftime, you're freezing. You go back out of the booth into the box and they they bring some food down to us. And it's a dry chicken sandwich. And I realized I've been socializing and I haven't eaten and I got to eat something before we get right back out there. So I'm chewing on the sandwich, but there's nothing on it. And I get to the point where as a piece of chicken lodged in my throat and it's not going up or coming down. And I, and, and you do all the things you try to clear the throat There's about five people standing around. Okay. By the way, for a while doing nothing. And then it became, it's weird. I, I don't know if anybody listening to this has had that choking experience where you needed a Heimlich, but it goes from being like, Oh, wow. This is kind of inconvenient. So, wow. Like I can't breathe. Like, and it, it does cross your mind that, it, this could end like this. Like, come on. I'm not going to be the sportscaster who, who choked to death the Yankee City in press box, am I? And Jesse Palmer, you know, former New York Giant quarterback, is the one to react. People are going start – they start saying, oh, my God, oh, my God. Don't say, oh, my God, do something. <laughs> do something. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. So he leapt into action, you know, NFL player style, goes behind, bear hugs me, almost breaks my ribs. But it worked. Yeah, We're here talking tonight. So yeah. it went well. And, and I sort of like, Jesse actually shared a, a car back to the city from the Bronx. And I, I thanked him. And I kind of put out a, a post and said, hey, thanks for saving my life. And, you know, yaha ha ha. And then people... All of a sudden, figured I was serious, and I, I got bombarded with requests to go on the air and talk about it that night. But I was about three tequilas into my recovery from that drama. <laughs> I, like, yeah. I am going. I am not going to tell yeah, you. No, like, I, I didn't no, want. No. To, I just no. to be known for that. But, yeah. Yeah. I, I was glad Jesse was there. We've, we talked about that since fortunately, very carefully since then, by the way, uh, yeah. very carefully. Yeah. Well, not, I think about that. I'm not going to eat any dry sandwiches at halftime. I actually think about that every time I eat a meal in the middle of the game.
2: I can imagine I would do the same thing afterwards. I mean, it's like PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> Go, going back to some of the injuries that you, I think really you mentioned kind of helped kind of define this understanding of what the athlete goes through. You had a knee injury in college. Can you tell us about what happened, what the injury was and what your experience was like with that?
1: Yeah, that was terrible. I'd never been injured like that, and I, I was playing pickup hoops, intermural hoops. Actually, got tangled up under the basket. My body moved, my knee didn't, and I just was. I, I it was a horrendous, horrendous sound. Everybody in the gym kind of stopped and looked. It was that loud, and you know I was just totally ignorant. So I, I knew it was wasn't good because you, you don't hear a sound like that and, and think that nothing's wrong. But I actually hobbled back to my apartment. And it was blowing up at that time and then made my way over to the campus medical center, ACL, MCL, I had a chondoplasty done at the kneecap, you know, twisted and then twisted back. So shear off a piece of it at the bottom. It's my left knee. I was obviously uh, laid up for quite a while, but be- I, I say my message about physical therapy and rehab because i made a lot of mistakes. i rehab very badly from that. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I'm in college. I'm in crutches. Yeah. But I didn't take care of myself. I didn't do the follow-ups. I didn't have great physical therapists, you know, pushing me. And I didn't have the good sense at that point to push myself. So I got injured again a couple of years later because I didn't rehab it properly. Didn't regain the strength around the knee. My my left leg is still um, smaller in the quad than my right. And this has been uh, 35 years later. I worked hard to sort of balance it out, but I made a lot of mistakes and, and I just didn't get the kind of care at that point, that I've gotten much later. So I, that's why I can speak with a little bit of authority on what, what not to do, as well as what's worked for me. And three operations on that one side, none of them in a long time, but i still got a loose piece of meniscus floating around in there, but I just kind of move it out of the way. And it, it's big enough now that it doesn't get in any really terrible places. <laughs> I'm told that cartilage continues to grow even when it's detached. I didn't know that. but. Or, or, or at least it gets bigger and it doesn't get in the yeah.
2: way. You get some scar on it and kind of get in the way and stuff like that. But that
1: was my first injury, and it really did. And The doctor finally said, "Maybe you ought to consider not playing pickup basketball since you keep hurting yourself doing that." Yeah. And then, and I had to kind of semi-retire from skiing too because I I didn't want to ski in a giant Velcro steel brace, the kind that they had in the '80s. It, yeah. where this is the injury took place in '85, and 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 I, my subsequent one was in the '80s as well. So obviously knee surgery technology wasn't close to what it is today and neither was pt then i went a long time and it was was pretty healthy and then the, the two injuries that i've had in recent years that i experienced for the first time were you know the pec tendon tear off the bone yeah um, separate incidents same exact exercise same exact weight so benching 225 i still have weird feelings when i do that because it's happened both times and as anyone that's had that happen knows, it's just, it's a rubber band snapping. And when it happened the first time, I, I didn't know what it was. I'd never had an upper body injury. So it was a little bit like that first knee experience. I knew something was was wrong. I was hoping it was just a muscle tear, but I didn't recognize within my body that that snapping sound meant the tendon was off because it wasn't really excruciating. Like I could function. I, I didn't lift anymore, obviously, but you know, I, I flew on that. Out to Colorado, I did a trail run at 10,000 feet, bouncing down a mountain trail with my pec detached. And finally, I know you're, you're I could see your face. <laughs> I'm just impressed I, that you were able to endure it, the pain. It was really, really purple after that. I yeah. thought, you know, I'm going to call my guy at HSS. This really looks like <laughs> it was tomorrow you went to the Sedman Clinic. Yeah. Like you, you, you cannot, what are you doing? I said, yeah, I was, I was an idiot. But, you know, if you go through something for the first time, you don't experience it. And I'll say this, this guy, I'm sure you run into this when you treat athletes. I, I do, you know, come to find out through all these things have a pretty high tolerance for pain. So that's a blessing and a curse, right? Because I didn't recognize the severity at the time. I'm, I'm much more tuned into that now. So that even if things don't really, really hurt me, if it persists, I understand it needs to be looked at. And so, yeah, I got sewn back up. The rehab was not fun, but I got great, great care. I got a great surgery out there. Excellent physical therapy, really attacked it. The phrase I use and I always espouse is prudent aggression. Um, I'm not reckless, but I'm also not patient. So I'm pushing myself. I want to be pushed within the realms of what's sound medicine, but I don't accept anything less than that know from myself or from anybody that i work with so i was able to get back and i was really proud of the quick recovery at prp at the time of the surgery at mm-hmm. prp injection afterwards which i'm a believer in i don't know if you are or not but it helped me a lot to sort of heal ahead of schedule i was back benching like full weight within about five months or it was way yeah. more aggressive than, than i was told it was going to be but it also felt very gradual and, and sensible i wasn't recklessly throwing up anyway i worked my way to it i just yeah. worked really hard Lou had a knee had that scope and then i did the other the other pec tendon about a year ago and you know then it's i had that expression on my face we talked about raised. Yeah. i'm in a weight room it happens I'm, I'm benching exactly the same weight for reps i got very comfortable doing that and i just lost focus in the form and so anybody that who's my age i'm 58 who trains and wants to train seriously i am just an absolute pain in the ass to work i will just focus 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 on your form because yeah. you, you lose focus you lose form and that's what happened to me i just got a little bit careless with the ball at the bottom of the range of motion snapped it back up boom right away i knew what happened i knew 100 what happened and this this guy i'm lifting with he'll never forget to look at my face fortunately he was strong enough to haul the bar off of me because you can't really The first time I got hurt, I was trying to, it was, uh, the weights were clipped in. I I couldn't get the weight off me Oh jeez! And I'm sure I made it worse by trying to do, get it off of me. This time I knew exactly what happened. He hauls the weight off. And I just like, I was just, I was more emotionally crushed than I was like in pain because I knew what happened. I knew we got surgery. We got ice. We got a lot of road back. We got injections and, and it's going to take another five or six months, which doesn't seem like a long time. But, you know, I just try to live every day fully and be as active as I possibly can. And I didn't like the idea of five more months on the shelf, but the same thing. And as I find out, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, the second time, same injury, other side, but I was such a better patient. It's like my body knew what to do to recover. Yeah. And the recovery was so much smoother. You know it's like okay we this is the second time i know what this is like and maybe it partly was just me knowing but i also think i've been told your body sort of gets used to that kind of rehab so
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it's expectations. I think we see it a lot more kind of in joint replacements because that's a lot more bilateral or on both sides more commonly than injuries, for example. But I think a lot of it is the expectation. You've been there. You kind of know what to expect. You're not as hesitant to do this certain physical therapy motion while you're in your initial phases of recovery. So I think that expectation setting really helps you. Um, and I think, like you said, your body understands what it can and can't do during those phases, too, which makes it, I think, a little bit smoother uh, as well.
1: Yeah, you know, again... I have such gratitude for, for, the, for the surgeons and the nurses and, and, and the physical therapists, because those are the folks that are with you in the trenches. And the, the, the good ones are part drill sergeant, part shooter, part therapist, I mean all of those kinds of things. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just a part of the profession. Yeah. And they see you. At, at, I, I can relate to athletes where they tell their stories about the dark moments when they are a long way from getting a knee for example, rehab, I've been there. I know what that feels like. I I know the work that goes into it mentally and physically. And so uh, I think that's given me an appreciation because those PTs who have been there for me and and filled all of those roles, there's two key guys, Kevin Mills down here in Miami and Marty Jaramillo in New York, the places that I kind of split time. I've been really, really fortunate to have those two guys who know my situation very well, So at this point, it's like, okay, here we go again. But like right now I'm getting physical therapy for golfer's elbow, micro tears in the tendons and the inside of the elbows, just more wear and tear stuff. You know, I I know I'm not supposed to lift the way I do at my age, but I can't help it. It gives me great pleasure and I'm going to do it. So I'm going to have to do the tendon maintenance at this point to get it. And instead of getting them torn, I stopped, had PRP in both sides, now getting a lot of stem a lot of manipulation. And I'm, I'm very early in the in the PT process, but I expect you know they've given me a good prognosis for being you know being able to fully load it in another month or so. So I'm yeah. going to be patient, but aggressive as I always am.
2: Yeah. I think it's a good approach. That's how we approach things down here too. I want to pull on a little thread that you had mentioned, because I think it's an important aspect of this idea of injury and recovery. I think two things I want to hear your thoughts on. And one is before you consider your second time tearing the pack, the first time you have this diagnosis where you don't really know what it is, What is the feeling when you go into the doctor's office and actually tell you what's wrong and what needs to be done, which is typically surgery in the cases that you mentioned? And then two, what is the hardest part about the recovery phase from a mental standpoint? Is it the early phase? Is it when you start to feel better, but you still can't do quite stuff? What is the hardest part mentally going through all that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I knew I needed surgery. He could tell, he told me on the phone, the surgeon told me on the phone what had happened. As I described it, he was 90% sure, 99% sure that the pect had to come off the bone. Now that sounds kind of grisly. It didn't sound good as a patient, as someone had never been through an upper body injury. Um, but I think for a lot of people too, and this is, maybe they can relate to this. You know, I'm not really scared of surgery. And that we say that when it's abstract, you know, I, but then when the reality hits and you go in there and you realize here you go. I mean, I think any patient, even if you're experienced and you meet people, that was my 15th surgery. I've had 17. I I know a lot of people that have a lot more surgeries than me, but I think every time, I mean, still, you still, you're not immune to it. Right. So there's a little bit of that anxiety and, and then the unknown, they prepared me really well at Stedman for the amount of pain they thought I was going to have. And, when you have that pec tendon, you know, obviously they're loading you well with, with, with anesthetics and locals. And then when you come out of it, they're expecting you to be screaming, expecting you to be in a lot of pain. And, and they load you up. And I'm sort of not about painkillers. I try to really avoid any kind of opioids or serious painkillers if I can. And so they prepared me well, and it was far less than I was expecting. So it was good. They painted a picture. It wasn't nearly as bad as that. And then it's just about, obviously, icing it up, getting the swelling down. And then I just want to begin rehab as soon as I possibly can. So it's just, okay. And then understanding this is a different kind of injury than you've had. Um, you don't want to rip the tendon off the bone again for sure. So get that wound as strong as possible before you can start doing anything real. And so I think the hardest thing is the the realization of how long the road is when you start like the first parts of physical therapy when it's serious and you haven't really been through it before. You've got a rebuilt knee or you've got a rebuilt shoulder. I mean, I feel for people in that and that and I get people reach out to me all the time because I do Instagram posts about this and I try to be a, a supporter and, and offer some ideas. I don't presume to have any medical expertise, but I'll just say, here's what's happened to me. Here's what's been important to me. Here's what I think um, might help you. And people respond and they tell their stories. So I know how tough it is to be in that early stage when you're just starting out and it seems like forever before you're going to get back and do the things that you want to do. Or you see even have a normal life? Maybe maybe these people are not athletes. They just want to walk around with that pain and they know how hard it's going to be to get back to that point. So. Um, that that's where I think encouragement is really needed is in the early stages. Once you get going you see progress, there's momentum, I felt okay about it. Cause I think the, the, the progress I was seeing was really good. I'm pretty optimistic by nature, so I'm not going to feel too dark and down once I'm in the middle of it. And I, I feel like we're on a path. It's just at the beginning of it is tough. Yeah. I think a lot of
2: Yeah. yeah. That's what I've heard from a lot of um, not only guests on the podcast, but patients. I think it's that initial phase where you can't do much. Therapy is a little bit slow and you really can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And then once you start making that progress, eventually that kind of eases up. For me, it's interesting. I've been very fortunate, never had any major surgeries, but to to watch patients go through this, um, obviously is a different perspective. I haven't experienced it personally, but that's kind of what I see is Two weeks, people are a little hesitant still. Six weeks after surgery, when they're starting to kind of move a little bit, you get to see a little bit of kind of uh, optimism. And then when you see them around three, four, or five months, it's a different story. And that's where I think things kind of change and evolve, which is great.
1: Yeah. Once I get back and I could do training, and it, it went from PT where they're manipulating it and just giving it a STEM and making it, it feel better to actually training. Even though you, you're humbled, you start way back with low weights and bands, whatever it is. Uh, once I can get back to that point, I could see, okay, we're on a road. I mean, I'm at least being active, and the weights are going up gradually. Then I was fine. It was it was just where it felt more medical than it did like training. That that phase of it was, I mean, nobody loves hospitals, right? So, no. no. <laughs> what what is your opinion? I, I know in, in this country, insurance doesn't pay for it, but PRP. I want to be careful, like being. Uh, A real proponent of that because I know it's not right for a lot of people, and I I know that proposing this kind of thing that maybe their doctor isn't high on, their insurance company won't pay for, is really uncomfortable. Yeah, (laughs) I've had plenty of cortisone shots and PRP shots. They all suck. They don't feel great. But I, I, I want to be careful not advocating what's worked for me. For anybody else, because I know that their experience could be very different and these things are expensive.
2: Yeah, they are. From a uh, data standpoint, most of what PRP has shown to have some improvement with is really non-surgical things such as tendinopathy. So as you mentioned, you know, golfer's elbow or tennis elbow, that was somewhat one of the earliest studies that came out that showed PRP had a benefit compared to placebo or just another type of injection. So the indications have gradually evolved, but even with those studies, you're very correct in the sense that insurance companies will still won't pay for it. It's out of pocket. It will range different prices based on the location of the country and okay. different practice. And so where you? with it, we definitely use it. We see a lot of baseball athletes down here. And so depending upon the type of situation, it can be used for Tommy John injuries. If they're, you know, partial tears, especially depending upon the type of season, uh, we'll use them. As I mentioned for different tendon problems, like you've experienced surgically, some of the docs use them for certain things, depending on what if it's a tendon issue to augment some of the healing that I think is less proven out in the data long-term. But I think that if you're really trying to throw a lot out of it and if it's a tendon problem, that's where we see most applications. And so rotator of tears. You know, if you have a bad tear, the tendon quality is not great. Or if you're a little bit older, the thought is that you know sometimes PRP can augment the healing. And so there are certain situations where we, we will use it. I, by all means, like you said, I don't advocate it for everybody. I don't advocate in every situation. And we're pretty judicious here, especially on the surgical side. But I do think it has its applications. I feel, still think we have a yeah. lot to learn. I
1: ended up during surgery on the pec tendons, but, but I'm a more of a believer in it than what you talked about just post-op. The tendon here, it frustrates me. The medical the insurance system that we have here that physical therapy it's so tough for people to get their insurance company to pay for the kind of pt they need or the diagnostic tests that they need i mean you know these are not life-threatening situations but you want to know what's wrong with you right and you want to get on a path to recovery and I, I just feel blessed that i'm able to not be reliant on my insurance company but i know that so many people are and i i i get frustrated i can hear their frustration when i have conversations about this kind of thing because you know, yes. MRIs are expensive. Ultrasound is expensive. The the insurance company doesn't want to do that. I had had my insurance company tell me, we're not going to MRI your knee. I know I need knee surgery. I know there's a loose piece floating around. It's swollen up. If I walk around and do PT for six weeks, which is what the insurance company wanted me to do, it's just bad medicine. It would have been a terrible idea. So, you know, give me a scan. I'll pay for it. I know what it is. Get the piece out and get about the business. But I, I feel for folks. Um, I've got a member of the family who's a, a veteran and you know, he's in the VA system. And that's just not what, it's not the kind of care that I've been able to arrange for myself. And I, I feel for folks that are frustrated because. I feel like it's, a, it's just a real problem with the industry that we have. That we, well, you know, I, that I can-
2: I completely agree. And I'm going to spare you from turning this into like a four hour podcast because you want to get me <laughs> on a soapbox about that stuff. But I completely agree. I think it makes it, it very difficult in a lot of ways for those reasons that you, you mentioned. And I think there's a lot of improvement to be made. Uh, but I agree. I think that the important part is is finding good physicians and, and good therapists who can help you and trying to do your best to obtain that access and finding physicians and medical staff who are going to fight for you. I mean, my staff is phenomenal, but they that's what a lot of what their time is spent doing is making sure that they can get MRIs approved, that they can get surgeries approved, and all these things that we really fight for. But I think it's inter- it'd be interesting to hear from your standpoint. You had, uh, at least for your uh, pect tendon tears, two great surgeons, one of whom I know personally, Dr. Peter Millett, and then also Dr. Dines from HSS. I mean, obviously, these are two of the premier places in the country, but what about them and also your therapists who've helped you really stand out as far as what makes them good at their job and what makes them trustworthy for you to continue to go to?
1: It's a good question because their recommendations at first, I didn't know Pete Millett at first, but I, he was recommended to me. He had been at HSS and, and, and Josh shines at HSS recommended me. And I thought I, I knew of the Seven clinic, obviously in Vale. I, I have a, spent a long time in the mountains out there. So I know the background of it. I know how many elite athletes and how many folks have been helped over the years at that place. So it's much like the, the practice there. It's world renowned. People come from all over the place. to visit you guys and, and, and in certain respects, they do so at seven as well. You're well, walking, you see all the jerseys in the wall, like all the great practices have. <laughs> but it was just the sense of confidence and command that that you guys have when you've got the credentials and you you feel well supported by a practice and an organization. You're surrounded by great people. And that was just very obvious from the very first conversation I had with, with Dr. Millett and the support staff and at HSS as well. And down here, Lee Kaplan, who's the the Marlins doctor, University of Miami doctor. He's worked on Serena's knees. That's good enough for me. He's been my knee surgeon down here and he's been my guru in South Florida. So again, very, very blessed. One of the things about this job that is a perk that is right near the top of the list, way better than getting good hotels and good uh, tables at restaurants is his having connections with some of the top sports medicine and top orthopedic people in the world. Yeah. And, and it's very flattering that they're able to put me in their schedule and agree to work with me. And and so I don't take that for granted for a second because it was the same thing. I, I had known Josh Dines before he had taken care of my knee. He's the Mets guy. He's the USTA doctor. So again, you come into it with the knowledge that these people are at the top of the profession. I did not have that situation when I was injured when I was younger. Just didn't have access to it. Um, it was more random. Nothing against the medicine or, or the doctor or the hospital in the 80s. I just didn't get that kind of care. I was just a, another patient. But the, these guys were, were very reassuring. Realistic, realistic, but very reassuring. I had no doubts about it. And once, once you're sort of able to work with people that you trust then you trust them to recommend other people too and I, as you know at the level of, of sphere that you guys operate in it's pretty small near the top of the mountain right so everybody knows everybody else and you and and you you feel like you may not agree on everything 100 of the time but you understand who the quality people are and then their reputations are earned and, and won over time and i, I couldn't have been happier with the care I've had
2: yeah. You got some top-notch surgeons working on you. Uh, well, I'm glad that you came through all that. H- have you changed anything in terms of how you train? You mentioned that, you know, you still train pretty hard, like the lift, and that's a pleasure for you. Have you changed anything that you do in terms of how you approach workouts or fitness uh, since you've come through these injuries?
1: Yeah, I've had to. I don't think it's hurt me though. I think I've tried to train smarter, if not harder. And that's an expression. I've talked to Desmond Howard, my, my colleague in game day for all these years. He's had plenty of injuries and you don't know, you know, play in the NFL like he did for as long as not and not be banged up. He just turned 50, so I got like eight years on him. But Des and I will talk about it and and, and he's a big proponent of training, smarter, not harder. Um I think that the mind body connection that I've developed just from the injuries and from the rehab has been really useful for training. I, I talked before about how I felt lost focus and lost form. And that was when when it happened the second time benching 225 you know for reps and then and then having the other side rip off the bone i was like you got to be kidding me but it it was just a reminder that you know this is a serious thing at this age you you have to be careful and i i I train differently and i'm extremely focused on, on the mind muscle connection and on form i'm still working through this golfer's elbow there's you know, this these tendons on the inside of my elbow i'm still doing exercises but i'm just being extremely conscious of form and it, my, the first thing i ask my pt is what can i do what can i do but and then i, I, I <laughs> probably he knows me by now but i kind of annoy him with the questions that can i press can i curl how do i do it right what and it, what up to what weight and so i try to push the limit but yeah. of course i'm not an idiot I, I have to make some concessions to age in certain respects, but I'm not going to lie. You know, I'm a little bit stubborn about that because I, I know what works for me, and I know what keeps me fit. And and for me, anybody listening to this who's sort of up in my age group can possibly relate. You know, maintaining muscle mass later in life and all the, the all the benefits that has as, as challenging as that is at 58, when you don't have the the teacup that you have when you're younger. And I like the fact when people ask me. Like, what are you on? You got to be on something. You tell me you, you there's no way you're natural. Um, I mean, you're smiling. I, I, I like getting that question because it's flattering. I've yeah. never taken anything. I'm not going to take anything. I'm not. Yeah. The last thing I'm mean, 50 years, I'm going to start taking steroids. Come on. Yeah. HGH, I haven't touched anything like that, but people sort of assume that if you're at my age and, and, and fit and, and have those goals that you are, I'm, I'm here to say zero of that ever. Yeah. But I, I do want to do what works for me. And I want to continue to train in a way that I can maintain muscle mass. So, yeah, I mean, the questions that I have for the surgeon, for the PT, for everybody involved is when can I get back to fully loaded? And that to me means as, it, as I was doing before. In yeah. other words, yeah, I know I hurt myself lifting this, but I want to get this back to 100%. I'll be careful. I might do it less. I might not go for one rep maxes. Because I know that as we lose explosive power, that that becomes less realistic. But you can count on some old man strength. And maybe work it differently, but still get the feeling yeah. of lifting heavy, right? So, um, unfortunately, old man strength does not does not go to the tendons. I found. <laughs> no, unfortunately, that
2: I, that actually is probably one of the fa- places that ages affected most in those tendons.
1: And if anybody yeah. out there has got any tips on, on on tendon health and tendon elasticity, I'll do anything. I'll say. Yeah. I mean, for me going forward and trying to stay active, um, I don't really live in fear of stuff, but I'm extremely mindful of like my Achilles and and the surgeon who's, who's fixed my knee and shoulder ripped his Achilles playing tennis, which I still like to do. And so, and he stretched it out. He did all the things a lot younger than me and he did all the things you're supposed to do and boom. And so like anything like that involves that kind of explosive movement or jumping. I mean, I'm just... You, once the engine has broken down a few times, left you on the side of the road, you never drive the same way, yeah. right? You, you listen for those sounds under the hood and you get a little freaked out if the, light, the dashboard starts flashing and you're just never going to drive with that same confidence again. Yeah. That's kind of how I am. I mean, I'm, I'm not a hypochondriac, but I've, I've learned to listen to my body much better. And that's been something that's come through injuries and PT. And that's why I try to help whomever I can with advice and encouragement. It's more encouragement than advice, but just the idea that if you want it badly, if it's important to you and you work with great people and you listen to them and you progress prudently but aggressively, you can come back and be stronger than you were before. And and if I can do it at my age with my lack of athletic ability, I guarantee that most people can do it. And they, that's, they don't always get that message because people don't want to set expectations too high or put in their head that it's not going to be a big deal, this recovery. And you can go, I, I, I know I have to change the way I do some things. And I have, but I also believe that um, until you reach a certain point where your body goes, are you insane? We're not up to this anymore. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to get back yeah. and, and do what I did before and, and, and maybe push it a little bit because you know, let's face it. Life is also about pushing it. It's not yeah. about being prudent all the time, you know? And, and, and so I'm going to, I'm going to try my best to come back from this latest thing and, and deadlift what I li- lifted before yeah. because I really like it. It makes me feel good. Yeah.
2: Well, it's also an uh, important point you made earlier in terms of maintaining muscle mass. I think as anyone ages, once you get past really age of forty or 50 is start to decrease. And Peak bone mass starts to decrease even earlier than that in your mid to late 20s. And so I think it's very important to maintain some sort of resistance training, whatever that is that you, you tend to like. But I think it's important. And that's what I mean, I talk to my parents who are a little bit older than you, but it's the same sort of thing. And that's something that I encourage. And they've kind of yeah. tried to maintain that as well.
1: Yeah, I think out. that you can do that without having to try to make, you know, break personal records. Obviously, there's different ways to do that. But that's such a just a massive priority for me. And it's, it's what's worked for me to stay fit. Like cardio, I do it. But for me, maintaining my fitness level and the weight and the body fat percentage and all the things that the metrics that you can use as measurables, it just works better. Compound lifting, heavy lifting, just works better for me. Yeah. And there'll come a point when I know I have to shift the emphasis. But um, you know, I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, that's awesome. Well, a couple of last things here. It was interesting. You mentioned that after your first pec tear you were running at 10,000 feet. I know that mountains are an important thing in your life, just growing up in Colorado, one, but also from your family. I know that you, you had a great Instagram post talking about your mom and a special place that you were up in the mountains. where did this love of the mountains come from? And, and also, where were you when you were running with that pecter?
1: I, I was in my backyard, basically, which is in, outside of Breckenridge, Colorado. So I, my family was going to the mountains, but my parents are from Colorado. Both went to see you We were exposed to the the beauty and the power of the mountains early. And I I love all forms of nature. That's sort of my church is to go be in in natural beauty, but the mountains are are nature to me in it's most powerful form. It speaks to me. So having the good fortune to be all over the world and and climbing the Himalayas and climbing the Andes and climb Kilimanjaro and climbing the Alps and and be all over Colorado. But those for me, pun intended, are peak experiences, those are the things that, that are the most powerful memories in my life. And so, and they always will be. I mean, I, I really hope that long after I stop deadlifting heavy weight, I can still hike up a mountain. And, yeah. and one of the things that I, I'm not blessed with many forms of athletic ability, but altitude tolerance is up there for me. So I'm able to do things like, uh, you know, go to 10,000 feet and run on the first day that I'm there. Yeah. Just from years of being there. And, and so I'm very pleased about that, and, and uh, I can still hike 20-year-olds into the ground who, who aren't used to it. <laughs> it's a good feeling. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, uh, you referenced in Summit County, Colorado, We it was always a special place for my family. I have a lot of amazing memories of, of taking hikes there. When I first came out there, I looked at those mountains and said, oh, man, like someday, someday. I'm going to stand on top of that mountain. My brother and I would look up there and like two months later, we were doing it because we were, we would spend the summers out there. There was nothing else to do. Yeah. That's so messing around with chainsaws and trying not to hurt yourself and then go climb mountains. And so when, when we got tired of cutting down trees, my parents said, you know, let's, let's go do something else. We would be hiking all the time. And so um, there's a strong connection for me to, to mountains in that way. And I just, I, planning to go back to Nepal. We've had to push it because of COVID now until another year, but we're getting back to the Himalayas for one more time. I just want to see that scenery again one yeah. more time. And there are more volcanoes to climb in South America. There are more mountains to climb in Colorado. And, and uh, you know, for me, it's not really about checking off summits. It's about just enjoying that experience and being really present. And, and there's very few feelings that I like better than having the entire world fade away and have everything be about your lungs and your heart and the next step and, and, and what it takes to just do that. And, and nothing else in the, in the world is important at that moment. So I, I, I love that feeling. I hope I can do that for a long time. And and I like to introduce other people to it as well, because it's neat to to see them experience what, what mountaineering uh, at like whatever level they, they do it, even if it's just a walk up, you know?
2: Yeah. Oh, that's a great description of that. I mean, it brings me back a lot just growing up there and having that be a part of my life too. And you a, know what I'm talking background. about.
1: It's just say like, I, I climbed Pikes Peak on Memorial Day because I, I wanted to in high school. It was a crazy decision. We we what looked like a small snowfield, as you know well yeah. from Colorado Springs. Yeah. It was a uh, massive, <laughs> deep, wet, sloppy piece of snow that you could not get around yeah. to get to the top. And we just, we fell into our, our waist.
2: Yeah. Because in May you know, definitely still deep at that time of year.
1: You don't, you don't climb on, on snow in May yeah. when the sun has been cooking it. Yeah. So it, it was one of the stupider decisions, but one of the more challenging moments. And, you uh, know, you know, Pike's peak, my mom, I'm a brother were with me. That was, I'll never forget that. That was just one of those deals where it was my stupid idea. And now I had to get everybody through it. We had, we all had to get up there. Yeah. Uh, so we, we did, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I feel most alive and most at home is that state.
2: Yeah. Well, um, I think it's a great place to start wrapping up. And I, I want to leave it to you in terms of any pieces of advice for our listeners, whether it's about injury or your experience being a commentator and, and some of the games, anything you want to leave our listeners with today?
1: Well, I'm about, about gratitude. I'm eternally grateful. It's taken a while for that to become the guiding principle in my life. But understanding that what we have to be grateful for is so much more powerful, more plentiful than what we have to worry about. And, and just if you're grateful, I mean, it's really hard to say unhappy for a long it's hard to stay depressed. It shifts your focus to the things that are important away from the things that we cannot control. And, and then just the idea of opportunities. The opportunities are endless and boundless. And I think if we, if we can maintain whatever stage in life we are, and I love hanging around young people because it's all about possibilities when you're young, but no matter what age you are, if you, if you continue to be more inspired by the possibilities the universe offers you, then you are discouraged by the obstacles. And that's important because you've all come through a time and it feels like the possibilities have been taken away from us. We've been robbed for the possibility to be around loved ones or friends or travel or experience adventure or maybe do what we want to do, eat what we want to eat. Those things have been denied us. It's felt like there have been fewer possibilities. The reality is possibilities exist in every moment if you're aware enough to seize them and recognize them. And, And now that they're opening up, I think retraining ourselves to realize what's possible. And how to to grab them, and and in, in the realm of what we talked about here, you know, find something that you love to do and you're passionate about. And if the things that you have to do in life are also the things that you love to do, the, the closer that those line up, the easier it is to be happy and fulfilled. And I've never made a choice that was guided or steered by money or fame or the other things that people think this job involves. It's purely been about challenge, enjoyment, fulfillment. And and, and those are the things that have guided my professional decisions. And that's why I made a lot of bad decisions in a lot of areas. But I've I've trusted my inner voice, which you only find through stillness. You've got to learn to cut out the static. Whatever external forces are making it harder for you to listen to the inner voice and act on it. It could be well-meaning people. It could be parents, relatives, teachers. I, I, I advise whomever I can try to tune all of that out. And, and find the stillness to listen to what's in your heart and your gut, because to me, that's always been the most reliable guide. And then if you do get hurt, trust the expertise of experts like yourself and others and ask them to push you and, and just stay relentlessly positive. It goes so far. Just be relentlessly positive and, and challenge yourself and understand that you can come back stronger than you were before. It's not a cliche. It can be done in, in most cases, um, I'm not speaking for every injury. I, I understand there are situations and I, I know about serious medical conditions and I, I have an appreciation for life. that only comes when you lose a parent when you're young. And my, my dad, I lost him when he's 10 years younger than I am now, 11 years younger. And so I know how precious life is. That's always shaped my, my mentality. We're guaranteed nothing. So think about the opportunities and the possibilities and not the guarantees because there are way more possibilities than there are guarantees. So that's way, way more than you bargain for. But oh. that's a lot of the things I think important jammed down into one cancer.
2: <laughs> I loved it. I love it. I think it's a, a fantastic way to kind of wrap things up. But you know, again, going back to the beginning of this is your voice is an iconic Saturday voice, but hearing the experience that you've had, not only with what you've done throughout commentating and throughout football, but also your experience and just travel and tennis and everything else and your personal experience through injury and recovery. This has been very enlightening for me. I've learned a lot only about you, but just about everything that you've been uh, in contact with and influenced. And so I, I thank you very much for your time.
1: Well, I thank you. What you guys do at Andrews and for college athletes, but also for regular folks is priceless and invaluable. I mean, there's never been enough attention paid to people in the medical profession. Now through a, a global tragedy, the, the role that everybody in that field plays throughout the hospital system, medical system has been highlighted, but just the, the quality of care, the physical therapists out there, I do believe it's a noble cause. I just, I just did a podcast episode of my own with a, with a Marine who's an amputee, up at an IED in Afghanistan, is now working towards his kinesiology degree and wants to be a physical therapist. Yeah. And I, I said, good luck to you, because I believe that's a noble cause, helping yeah. people in pain who are worried and scared get back to full strength. Is so important. So thank you for what you continue to do. This podcast, I'm sure is is an awesome service for people and I'm I'm proud to be a part of it.
2: Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Awesome. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye.
0: Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.